Hello again, friends, and welcome to part four of The Road to LA 84, our multi-episode retrospective on the 40th anniversary of a seminal moment in a golden era of marathoning. We're telling the behind-the-scenes account of the athletes, the training, and the build-up races. This week, we turn back the clock for a nostalgic look inside sports and pop culture one year out from the games of the 23rd Olympiad. MTV ruled the airwaves. Michael Jackson transformed his hit single Thriller into a 14-minute movie that still ranks as the greatest music video ever. North Carolina State basketball coach Jim Valvano madly sprinted around the University of New Mexico court looking for someone to hug after the greatest Cinderella run in NCAA history. And the baby boomers' grip of American culture loosened as Generation X came of age. Forty years later, this is the story of Los Angeles in the 1980s, the world's cultural capital, and its history on Seconds Flat. This is the second flat running podcast. Roll down the windows. Put down the top. Crank up the Beach Boys, baby. Don't let the music stop. We're going to ride it till we just can't ride it no more. From the South Bay to the Valley. From the West Side to the East Side. Everybody's very happy because the sun is shining all the time. Looks like another perfect day. I love L.A. The synthesizer-infused piano rock first release from Randy Newman's seventh studio album, Trouble in Paradise, flopped. In spring 1983, it didn't reach the Billboard Top 100 or cross the lips of famed DJ Casey Kasem on his American Top 40 radio countdown. Despite inspiration from Eagles drummer Don Henley and cameos by Grammy winners Fleetwood Mac and Toto, who had climbed to the top of the charts the previous year, with a similarly geographically inspired hit, Africa, I Love L.A. appeared destined for commercial failure. Then just a year later, it became the sports anthem of the Golden State. The hook, I Love L.A., with the response, We Love It, echoing in the background, rang out through Southern California stadiums and arenas. Hollywood stars Jack Nicholson and Dennis Hopper belted it out courtside at Los Angeles Lakers games. Soon, the National Hockey League's greatest player, Wayne Gretzky, would come to L.A. and revitalize a dying franchise. The response to his on-ice artistry that ended in countless goals? I love L.A., playing over the public address system in the Great Western Forum. Forty years later, royalty checks still roll in for the septuagenarian Newman. Who can he thank? the Los Angeles Olympic Committee, and Nike for an incessant ad campaign featuring sprints and jump star Carl Lewis and distance-running golden girl Mary Decker. A once-nearly-forgotten single redefined a place, an era, and a cultural state of mind. 
Randy Newman returned to fame with I Love L.A. as part of Los Angeles' second great awakening of sports culture. In the late 19th century, Los Angeles was a quiet, post-colonial town anchored in its past as the former regional capital of Mexican Alta California territory. According to census data, in 1880, the city's population hovered just above 10,000 residents, dwarfed by more than 10 times over by its far more significant northern neighbor, San Francisco. The gold rush and subsequent connection with the East via the Transcontinental Railroad made San Francisco the crown jewel of the West and tiny L.A. an afterthought. But within half a century, the two municipalities' fortunes had flipped, and Los Angeles hosted the second Olympic Games on American soil. The first were an abridged version of the Olympics at St. Louis in 1904 as part of the 100th anniversary Louisiana Purchase Exposition. San Francisco suffered ruinous consequences from the great 1906 earthquake and fire. Call of the Wild author and Northern California native Jack London wrote after the Trembler, not in history has a modern imperial capital been so completely destroyed. San Francisco is gone. The city rebuilt itself, and decades later, its storied universities became the center of the modern technological revolution spawning Silicon Valley but the devastation intersected with ascending fortunes in Los Angeles. The City of Angels seized its opportunity, flourishing into the financial and cultural capital of the American West. An oil boom in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, combined with completion of the Los Angeles aqueduct supplying water to the region and Southern California's gorgeous Mediterranean climate to draw migrants from across the country. Soon LA annexed Hollywood, At the dawn of the Roaring Twenties, four out of five films worldwide were made in Los Angeles. The romanticized bright lights, fame, and fortune of Tinseltown turned this once sleepy village into the envy and object of dreamers everywhere. Its population flew past one million with no signs of slowing down. The games of the 10th Olympiad at Los Angeles 1932 put an exclamation point on the city's rapid climb to world-class metropolis. Track and field competed in front of mammoth audiences at the 105,000-seat Memorial Coliseum. The U.S. dominated, taking 35 medals, three times more than its closest competitor, as Babe Diedrichson starred. She won gold in the 80-meter hurdles and javelin throw and silver in the long jump while setting two world records. Pouring on the Southern California charm, Organizers awed athletes and guests with spectacular venues for track's endurance cousin, cycling. Road races followed the spectacular Pacific Coast Highway, perhaps the most famous and scenic route of the automobile era, south from Ventura County along the coast to Santa Monica. The Rose Bowl, famous for pink and purple-hued cotton candy sunsets over the San Gabriel Mountains at its eponymous New Year's Day college football game, was converted into a velodrome for track cycling races. Although several countries couldn't afford to send delegations due to collapse in global financial markets, LA32 was an enormous success. The organizing committee raked in a substantial profit, U.S. athletes excelled, and the world at large perceived Los Angeles as apart from the mushrooming economic woes. Later in the 30s, Dust Bowl refugees fled the plains like Steinbeck's fictional Jode family in the Grapes of Wrath, searching for their own piece of the American dream 
and redemption of the human spirit. Depression-era jobless from Eastern and Midwestern cities joined the trek for California. As Steinbeck masterfully wrote, muscles aching to work, minds aching to create, this is man. Like the summer games, the orchards, factories, and film industry provided hope amid the worst economic downturn in American history. Depression turned to world war as the 30s rolled into the 40s, and Los Angeles emerged as a manufacturing center, producing ships and aircraft for the war effort. Another wave of immigrants swelled the city, and its boundaries poured east into the San Fernando Valley. Poor Southern African Americans, escaping the yoke of sharecropping and seeking industrial labor positions, flooded South Los Angeles. Two distinct LAs developed, one of sunshine, the Beach Boys, and conspicuous wealth, and another of segregation and violence, yielding simmering racial tensions that boiled over not once, but twice in the following decades. Fred Savage portrays teenage protagonist Kevin Arnold in the late 80s, early 90s sitcom, The Wonder Years. Set against the backdrop of Vietnam and the sexual revolution, Arnold matures in the sun-kissed California of the 60s, ranch homes with unlocked doors on manicured tree-lined streets, disciplinarian fathers raised in the austerity of the Depression, schools renamed after slain leaders like Kevin's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. High, and the evolving social norms of the day. The show's narrator, Daniel Stern, of Home Alone Wet Bandits fame, closes the series finale stating longingly, after all these years, I still look back with wonder. Many Americans of a certain age and era share that wistful sentimentality for Southern California of the 50s and 60s. For all its flaws, the place and time endure as an American ideal. In those years, professional sports franchises fled the North and East for the greener pastures of California. It was LA's first sports culture boom. In 1958, Major League Baseball's rival Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants moved west. Naturally, they settled in Los Angeles and San Francisco, respectively, the West Coast's greatest antagonists. Brooklyn fans so hated owner Walter O'Malley after the relocation that an off-color anecdote spread through the borough. If you asked a Brooklyn Dodger fan, if you had a gun with only two bullets in it and were in a room with Hitler, Stalin, and O'Malley, Who would you shoot? The answer, O'Malley, twice. The Minneapolis Lakers of the National Basketball Association with their young phenoms Elgin Baylor and Jerry West followed the Dodgers in 1960. The Dodgers and Lakers joined football's Rams in LA, giving the city a power in each of the major American sports. Just as Los Angeles quickly blossomed as a city, its teams soon established themselves at the top of sport. Playing temporarily in historic Memorial Coliseum, the Dodgers won the World Series in 1959 and followed with titles in 63 and 65. Hall of Fame pitching aces Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale sparked the Dodgers' run in the 60s. 55 years ago, Bobby Kennedy opened his victory speech after the California primary, recognizing Drysdale's sixth consecutive shutout victory, then a major league record. Minutes later, anti-Israeli assassin Sirhan Sirhan murdered Kennedy as he left the hotel ballroom. The Lakers made the NBA Finals six times in the 60s, falling short each time against the Celtics 
and spawning one of sport's greatest rivalries. Meanwhile, down the road in Westwood, the University of California, Los Angeles, built the premier dynasty in basketball history. Coach John Wooden's Bruins won 10 NCAA titles in 12 seasons between 1964 and 1975. Arguably the two greatest college basketball players of all time, centers Lou Alcindor, later known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Bill Walton rose to the pinnacle of Coach Wooden's pyramid of success, each epitomizing Wooden's value of competitive greatness. LA's sporting success wasn't limited to team sport. UCLA's Rafer Johnson won the decathlon at Rome 1960. The LA Track Club produced three of the 14 sub-four-minute American milers between 1960 and 1965, and the Southern California Striders Club was a cradle of Olympians, home to a cavalcade of medalists including Mal Whitfield, Ralph Boston, Bob Segrin, and Ralph Mann. In Los Angeles sporting culture, these truly were the wonder years. The achievements of athletes of color in Los Angeles starkly contrasted with living conditions for the city's minority populations. Racially restrictive housing covenants made home ownership impossible in many neighborhoods long after such practices were ruled unconstitutional. Latinos, primarily of Mexican descent, congregated in East Los Angeles, while Black emigrants from the Deep South found refuge in South and Central LA. Both groups faced conflict with the established white majority. At the start of World War II, only one in eight LA residents was non-white. As that number rose, so too did the occasions for friction. East LA was the battleground for the city's most appalling racial strife of the 40s. The vividly named Zoot Suit Riots stemmed from the oddly combustible cocktail of wartime rationing and anti-Hispanic sentiment. Late on June 3rd, 1943, a pack of sailors visiting downtown LA engaged in a verbal, then physical altercation with several young Mexican-Americans wearing zoot suits. The zoot suit was an ostentatious, colorful clothing trend first popularized in the African-American community and later appropriated by a number of Southern California's ethnic groups. With war-era cutbacks in fabric consumption codified by the War Production Board, American servicemen saw zoot suits as a personal affront, Young people flaunting the zoot suit with its wide cut and excessive materials in defiance of the garment regulations. Accounts differ on who instigated the initial encounter, but there is no debate that the argument escalated into multiple days of rioting across the city. Encouraged by the news media and ambivalent law enforcement, servicemen, later joined by city residents, marauded the streets of East LA for several days attacking and beating hundreds of Mexican-Americans, LA's most populous minority group. Contemporary accounts castigated LA's Hispanic communities for the violence while barely mentioning the role of white mobs. After the fighting subsided, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt spoke out for more thoughtful deliberation on the nation's pressing racial questions. In response, the Los Angeles Times called her communist and suggested she was the one sowing racial discord. Two decades later, South Los Angeles erupted in violence. A powder keg ready to explode after years of injustices both real and perceived. Police brutality, segregation, redlining, poor housing, lack of economic opportunity, needed only a spark to incite a conflagration. 
Marquette Fry failing a field sobriety test during a reckless driving arrest on August 11, 1965, should have been an inconsequential moment in California history. Fry's mother arrived at the site and chastised him. Her Buick was sent to the impound lot. Then the scene turned chaotic. She was shoved. Fry's brother attacked an officer. Backup officers wrestled Fry to the ground. Guns were drawn. The neighborhood rumor mill hastened tragedy as stories of police beating a pregnant woman spread. Crowds gathered and fueled by years of pent-up rage and the freedom of anonymity in a sea of hundreds, bystanders threw rocks, bottles, and pieces of concrete at officers. For the next week, fighting intensified with the LAPD, LA County Sheriff's Department, and National Guard squaring off against protesters as a 46-square-mile area fell to looting, fire, and violence. More than 30 people died, over 3,000 were arrested, and property damage exceeded $40 million. The fallout expedited white flight into LA's burgeoning suburbs, a trend that spread nationwide after the long, hot summer of racial turmoil in 1967. And by the end of the decade, LA's white population represented only a 60% share of the 2.5 million residents. What boiled over in Watts slowly cooled, simmering under the surface, ready to spill over again in the 80s and 90s. The spring of 1978 was an unexpectedly monumental time in American sports. In April, a team of college all-stars gathered for a made-for-television barnstorming basketball event across the Southeast states known as the World Invitational Tournament. John Wooden, the Wizard of Westwood, had retired, and UCLA's dynasty faded away, replaced by Bob Knight's undefeated Indiana Hoosiers, and then in the 77-78 season, the resurgence of the tradition-rich Kentucky Wildcats. With Kentucky's Joe B. Hall as coach and games taking place in regionally loyal arenas, Wildcats littered the U.S. roster for the World Invitational Tournament. Final Four MVP Jack Goose Gibbons led the way, surrounded by his teammates. But the second team, scraping for minutes in the Wildcats' shadows, was where keen observers witnessed the future of American sports. An aw shucks small town boy from Indiana State and a charismatic teenage showstopper from Michigan State shared the floor in brief stretches. In those moments, we had our first taste of a round ball wizardry unlike anything seen before. God graced us with a pair of savants, so different in their upbringing and personality, yet equally transcendent with a nine and a half inch diameter inflated leather sphere in their hands. Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, their names inextricably linked for the next decade. They blended the ball handling and vision of basketball Jesus Earl the Pearl Monroe, with the tireless motion and energy of John Havlicek and the strength and size of Jerry Lucas. Bird sprinkled in Jerry West's jump shot. Magic elevated Pistol Pete Maravich's showmanship and creativity. And we saw them together for the first time in the spring of 1978. Jackie McMullen captured those first flashes of brilliance in When the Game Was Ours. Bird grabbing a rebound in stride and seamlessly leading a fast break the very thing Johnson made famous years later, while Magic filled the right wing. Across half-court, Bird looked left. Magic, dejected that he was an open target, missed, hesitated. Then Bird fired a no-look, 
behind the back rocket pass. Magic caught it, crossed over an unsuspecting Soviet defender, and returned the favor with a no-look over-the-shoulder feed. The virtuoso give-and-go performance then crescendoed. Almost at the instant the ball touched Bird's hands, he tapped it back to Magic. The last line of defense stumbled. Johnson laid the ball off the glass into the rim. In those seconds, basketball fans saw the future. A year later, the two stars met for the national championship. Soon after, the Los Angeles Lakers picked Magic Johnson with the first overall selection in the NBA draft. He was the cornerstone of the next L.A. sports dynasty, Showtime. And, along with Bird and the Lakers-Celtics rivalry, drove American sporting culture of the 80s. An implicit cultural fissure lurked in the background of their competitive friendship. The great white hope versus the bombastic African-American showman. Wealth, fame, excess, success, with an underlying socioeconomic tension. That was 1980s LA. In May 1978, the International Olympic Committee awarded the 84 Summer Games to Los Angeles. It was a watershed event for the IOC. We hadn't seen the Olympic Games on American soil since the last LA Games in 1932. Numerous failed bids happened between 32 and 84, most notably Detroit's five attempts culminating in a runner-up finish to Mexico City 1968. After the terror attack at Munich 1972 and financial disaster of Montreal 76, the IOC faced scrutiny in its often corrupt selection process. The pressure to have a successful, profitable, sustainable games only increased after the 1980 Moscow boycott. The pressure on Olympic athletes swelled in kind. While outsiders see the summer games as a quadrennial endeavor, for a marathoner, it's about peaking once in an eight-year cycle. Under normal circumstances, Joan Benoit, Greg Meyer, Bill Rogers, and Alberto Salazar had only one shot at Olympic glory between autumn 1980 and spring 1988. Once the Carter administration initiated Moscow boycott plans, the pressure and focus intensified. Los Angeles was the only shot at marathon gold for our greatest generation of marathoners. Carrying Frank Shorter's torch came down to one 26.2-mile race in the sweltering California summer heat. 1978 brought Bird and Magic together for the first time and brought the summer games to L.A., Movie musical Grease won big at the box office with the duo as electrifying as Magic and Larry, Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta, going straight to the top of the pop music charts with soundtrack hits, You're the One That I Want, and Summer Nights. Audiences got their first taste of Reese's Pieces while watching Grease in theaters. Kenny Rogers taught us when to walk away and when to run in his mega hit, The Gambler. And the first season of TV action drama Chips let us ride along with motorcycle officers Ponch and John on Southern California's sprawling, sun-drenched highways. Fast forward to the early 80s, and L.A. reigned as the city of champions. Magic Johnson took the NBA by storm, opening the new decade with one of the greatest performances in basketball history. Normally a point guard. The 6'9 Johnson started the deciding sixth game of the NBA Finals at center in place of the ailing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, took the opening tip-off, played all five positions, and delivered 42 points, 15 rebounds, and seven assists. Most Americans didn't see Magic's transcendent performance. 
The NBA of the 70s had fallen out of public favor and professional basketball was then a regional sport. Drug use ran rampant among players and for much of middle America, the league appeared too urban and too dark skinned. Magic and Bird were changing the racially charged narrative with their extraordinary play, but they needed time and a broader audience. Game six played on a Friday evening in prime time was broadcast on tape delay at 11.30 p.m. in nearly every major market. Reruns of hit shows The Dukes of Hazard and Dallas aired instead. Johnson's championship-winning effort helped force network television's hand. Sports fans wouldn't settle for old soap opera episodes of Texas oil tycoons Bobby and J.R. Ewing. They demanded seeing the greatest athletes in the world live. In 1981, Bird Celtics won the title. In 82, Magic grabbed his second crown. By that point, CBS covered the entire NBA Finals live, and Magic and Bird had forever changed the sports landscape. Fittingly, a Mexican pitcher for the Dodgers captivated the sports world in 1981 when Fernando Mania swept L.A. Fernando Valenzuela, a rookie from Sonora, started on the mound opening day and raced to an 8-0 early season record with five shutouts. As he warmed up, the speakers at Dodger Stadium in Chavez Ravine blared Abba's 1976 best-selling single, Fernando. The Dodgers won the World Series over the Yankees, and en route, Valenzuela became the only player ever to win both Rookie of the Year and the Cy Young Award as best pitcher in the same season. That month abroad, military gunmen assassinated Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, and Iranians elected Ayatollah Khomeini as their new leader. Domestically, in a decade of pop culture dominated by movie soundtracks, yacht rocker Christopher Cross topped the Billboard Hot 100 with the theme song from rom-com Arthur. Ironically, the top-grossing Hollywood film that month was Zoot Suit, a dramatized account of the East L.A. riots scapegoating Mexican-Americans four decades earlier. The next spring, brash and cantankerous owner Al Davis moved his Oakland Raiders to the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. The Raiders' star young running back Marcus Allen came from the University of Southern California's tailback U tradition. The South L.A. campus was a font of Heisman Trophy winners, with Mike Garrett, L.A.'s most infamous running back O.J. Simpson, and Charles White preceding Allen. By 1983, the Raiders were Super Bowl champions, with Allen a future Hall of Famer, winning MVP honors. The distinctive silver and black Raiders jerseys inspired the poem and musical score The Autumn Wind, a modern reinterpretation of Mary Jane Carr's poem Pirate Wind, and the soundtrack to numerous works by NFL films. A generation of football fans hears The Autumn Wind and envisions the Raiders, crisp fall Sundays, and the professional gladiators of the gridiron. The Raiders' colors and logo also became synonymous with the rise of West Coast hip-hop. Compton-based rappers N.W.A. garnered national attention in the late 80s while donning Raiders black in tribute to their hometown franchise. The group's debut studio album, Straight Outta Compton, became a cultural touchstone, propelling Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, and Eazy-E to instant fame with lyrics addressing South L.A. issues of violence, police brutality, poverty, and drug abuse. Those social ills and legacies of earlier generations festered through the 80s before turbulently resurfacing in 1992 as they had in Watts 1965. 
sparked by a jury acquitting four Los Angeles police officers charged with the brutal beating of Rodney King, an act caught on camera by a nearby observer and repeatedly shown around the world, civil unrest spread across Los Angeles. But now, in a 24-hour news cycle, Americans from Portland to Philadelphia and everywhere in between watched live in shock as rioters pulled truck driver Reginald Denny from his vehicle and nearly fatally beat him. In some, casualties exceeded 2,000, and L.A. suffered more than $1 billion in damage. That violence was a decade away in 1983, as the Raiders sped toward the Super Bowl, their crosstown rival Rams made their own playoff run, the Dodgers won their division, the Lakers went back to the NBA Finals, Southern Cal won the Women's Basketball Final Four, and UCLA triumphed in the Rose Bowl game. But Police Chief Daryl Gates' aggressive tactics for sanitizing the city in the lead-up to the 84 Olympics surely sowed more seeds of discontent in South L.A. The largest and wealthiest city in a state that would rank as the fifth largest economy in the world if it were a sovereign country, Los Angeles before and after the Olympics, was a city of stark extremes in living, working, and cultural conditions. With a year to go until LA 84, Joan Benoit readied to defend her title at the Falmouth Road Race, a prestigious seven-plus-mile dash across Cape Cod. Alberto Salazar, Rob Di Castella, and Carlos Lopez prepared for the World Track and Field Championships in Helsinki. Salazar and Lopez for the 10,000 meters and Di Castella for the marathon. Bill Rogers and Greg Meyer looked forward to their next marathon at Chicago where Welsh track star Steve Jones planned his 26.2-mile debut. Rod Dixon, another track star, trained for his own marathon debut at New York, where he would share the roads with Norwegian sensation Greta Weitz, who was already a four-time women's champ in the Big Apple. Tashihiko Seiko bided his time until Fukuoka late that autumn. As the LA 84 marathon hopefuls logged miles that summer, the police commanded FM stations with their new hit, Every Breath You Take. And Irene Cara's number one smash, Flash Dance, What a Feeling, had theatergoers dancing in the aisles. The technological revolution that kept would-be marathoners of the next generation in front of their screens quickened irreversibly with Nintendo's release of Super Mario Brothers. And as in our multi-part series, nostalgia for a golden era reigned in Hollywood. The big chill brought together baby boomers accepting the realities of aging, failed relationships, financial trouble, friends lost, with the backing of an epic soundtrack of 60s music produced by Motown Records. We'll jump back into the training and racing of summer 1983 in the next episode of our Road to LA 84 series. August through October 1983 went a long way in separating the wheat from the chaff, the metal contenders from the hopefuls who were only pretenders. Next stop, the inaugural Track and Field World Championships. We look forward to sharing that story in part five of The Road to LA 84 on Seconds Flat.